the University of California Riverside presents Blue, Gold, and Black, the podcast that's dedicated to amplifying Black voices at UCR. I'm Dominique Bill from UCR's Community Engagement and Outreach Unit. In each episode, we'll be talking to UCR students, campus leaders, and community partners to explore the intersection of being Black and being a Highlander at UCR. And I can't wait for you to meet today's guest. Let's get started. Welcome, everybody, to the Blue, Gold, and Black podcast, where we are amplifying Black voices at UCR. Today, we have a special guest, Dennis McIver. He works in the honors program here at UCR. We're just going to be talking to Dennis about some of his work that he does at UCR, but also kind of his background, how he navigated life, his Black experiences that kind of helped shape him growing up, um, and then lead that into his career at UCR and how he's helping students in the honors program, um, but in particular, black students as well. Dennis, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. Um, it's a pretty nice day. Not too hot. Um, so staying cool for sure. It's been pretty hot. Um, but thank you for being here. So let's go ahead and just dive right in. Um, Dennis, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you come from, and kind of some of your, you know, pivotal moments throughout your childhood that kind of helped shape um, who you are today, especially in terms of your black identity, if you could. Sure, sure. And first, uh, I want to say I'm glad that we're able to have this conversation. I know you've been working on this for a while, and so I appreciate having the, the chance to share a little bit of my experience. Well, I'm originally from Baltimore City on the East Coast, was mm-hmm. there for the majority of my life, moved out here back in 2015. Mm. And the thing that I can tell you is that a lot of my experiences were formed as a part of my family. My family is originally from the Carolinas. I spent a lot mm. of time there as a youngster, mostly during the summers and family reunions, things Mm -hmm. like that. But also being a part of a predominantly black city growing up was very formative for me as well. But I think I didn't truly become aware of my blackness on a significant level until I was in high school. And when I was in high school, I went to a predominantly white institution very privileged in many ways, very much upper class. And so you had people who would take cars in every day and wore very high-end clothing. And I was the guy that was going to Value City for my clothes each year. And I was the guy that took a bus in for an hour each way in order Mm -hmm. to do it. Not to complain about that because that was very positive for me, but it Mm -hmm. definitely gave me a sense of who I was. And it kind of placed me between those two worlds in that in the city where I was where I was from, that was a place that I was used to. But then this other environment I was very much not the norm. And so mm. that was one place where I became aware. But I got very engaged while I was there. I did things like speech and debate. I wrote for my newspaper. I was president of my school's Black Student Union. That experience mm-hmm. continued for me when I was even in college where the percentages were very fairly similar to put it in perspective my class of 900 students who graduated with me in college less than 40 of them were black so once again that absence especially mm. it being in baltimore was very formative for me as well because i was very much aware just because i was one of the only ones there but again mm. got very active in college was an ra for the majority of my time there mm. i was vice president of our 
Black Student Association. Mm-hmm. I was a campus leader. And so I continued a lot of those same types of experiences. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that it was all positive. There are definite moments where I, I was aware of stereotypes. I did mm-hmm. notice that at times people spoke to me a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And even it wasn't necessarily a white and black thing. Even when it came to some of the different black people I encountered, it, I was mm-hmm. spoken with a little bit differently. And there were certain assumptions made about me. For example, yeah, you must play basketball, right? Oh, you're mm-hmm. you're going to be doing F, you're going to be doing black studies and stuff like that. And so there were certain mm-hmm. definitely different assumptions made about me. But I try to not take offense at it. It's definitely a situation i think where it depends on the person and it's just Mm -hmm. finding ways to persevere now that i'm older when it comes to being here at ucr since 2015 it's just been a matter of trying to be around as a resource and to be slid in whenever i'm a suitable person to be brought into discussions i've had a chance to talk to dr myrick quite a lot he was one of the first people that i knew when i came onto campus and so definitely Mm -hmm. been happy to provide support where I can for everything that he's currently doing with ASP. As far as other opportunities I've presented for the things that have been offered through African student programs, I've worked with their staff even when I was serving as chair of the campus's Black Faculty and Staff Association to do joint programming in support of them. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, it's I don't try to assign myself to one role or the other. It's really dependent on what the needs are. If I need to do mm-hmm. a programming experience, then If someone just needs me to jump in and talk to someone, then I'm happy to do that too. That's in addition, by the way, to my other Mm -hmm. responsibilities to campus. I am – my full-time job is that I'm a counsel for the university honors program, and I also have other commitments Mm -hmm. to campus. But really it's tell me what you need. Let me figure out how I can deploy my talents and the resources that I'm fortunate enough to have access to in order to help. And so I think that's probably the best way to describe it. And then the last thing I'd add is is trying to – make sure that there's a degree of presence as far as me as a black person is trying to make sure that I'm building some sort of presence there and Mm. just making sure that there's some face there that can provide some degree of representation Mm -hmm. to those and I think that's been a role I've been very fortunate to play to some extent as well yeah I I, that's a pretty great <laughs> a quick um, introduction to who you are from childhood to leading up now. So I think we have a lot of things that we can kind of just pe- um, tease out of that uh, little story that you kind of told right now. So in terms like just to kind of expand a little bit more on some of your formative years, childhood throughout high school, um, what what was your uh, can you talk a little bit kind of like the inspiration or maybe the teachings you got about your black identity um, when it comes to your family and things that you kind of just witnessed going on around you in your neighborhood um, a little bit specific or more specifically? Sure. And I think the one of the real opportunities that I began to learn about that was when I was in elementary school and they talked about mm. things like Black History Month and talked about the different amazing things that have been done by black people throughout history. So that that's something that really stands out to me. As far as my parents were concerned, it was never really something that was talked directly about except for instances where mm. – maybe something negative happened and then there was some context provided. So for example, being Mm. in the school that I was in, I may have mentioned this earlier, but 
even knowing that it was spoke being spoken to a certain way, that was one thing that if my family was made aware of it, they might give some context to it. As far mm. as other experiences, I think the most formative ones really happened for me between when I was 16 and when I was 19. And that was when mm. I had cases where there were certain assumptions made about me based off of the fact that I was black. And one thing that always stood mm-hmm. with me is being told that I was always very articulate, which is sort of a, a weird comment that I, I found to be made. And as yeah, if that's I got that so. Yeah, I got that so much growing up. That's it's funny that you say that. That's probably one of the major compliments that I could always point to that I received while growing up for sure. But then, even when it came to that, there were times where. For example, one experience that stood out to me was when I was a freshman in college, and mm. I was accused of stealing for no reason other than the fact that I was black in that fit of description. And I, I can mm. give you specifics on that, but the long story short of it is that yeah. I was leaving a dorm one day after having tried to visit a friend. Mm. I'm wearing my sweatpants and I'm wearing my backpack and Mm -hmm. so I start to run out. Someone who saw me, who I guess was recently robbed, had accused me of stealing and said, hey, where are you going? Where are you going? And said, I'm going to my dorm. I'm a student here. And he said, oh, really? Well, I just have my laptop stolen. And so in that moment, it was, what can I do in this situation to de-escalate it but to also make it clear how wrong you are? Mm. So very calmly, I said, would you like to see the contents of my backpack? And when he realizes that, he said, oh, well, no, I don't, I don't want to. I'm, I'm okay. I said, no, let, let me show you what's in my backpack. Opened it up. Sure enough, same thing mm-hmm. as normal. I left and said, you have a good evening. And, of course, the moment I went back to my dorm, I told my friends who were there, and they knew exactly who the guy was mm-hmm. and said, what's the matter with you? This is mm-hmm. Dennis. He's a friend. And that led to it being de-escalated fine so it was experiences like that that really sort of reminded me at that point that Mm. there is no matter what you're doing there is a degree of awareness folks have and the challenge is to try to turn it into something positive and try to progress in spite of it because it wouldn't have benefited me to have a blow up over that and Mm. i don't think there would have been a lesson that would have been relayed if i had gone in a not so positive direction Mm. and so that can be a bit of a challenge at moments because mm-hmm. there are assumptions made about you. But I think it's important to understand that even in those moments, you have there's a degree of obligation. You have to try to make the most of that situation, have your resources, have your support. And fortunately, I had friends that had my back in that moment. Mm. But it's trying to make the best in the situation. And I think that's – when I think about the black experience, I think that's what a lot of it is, is – even when it comes to the worst of circumstances, and we're talking about more than 300 years of the worst circumstances mm. in different forms through public policy, through the law, through perceptions of society, it's what can we do to best make the most out of that situation? Right. And so in those moments, I think that those are some ways where I've been reminded of it. And mm. it's just making sure that you provide the assistance to the folks who are also in the thick of it too and that's one of the reasons Mm -hmm. i tried to give support to students here i've always been really interested in making sure that we're uplifting and giving them the assistance and the pat on the back and nudges that they need in order Mm -hmm. to persevere because even in this moment on this campus we've had moments where students have felt 
have been challenged. And it's what can we do in the context of being professionals to make sure they feel represented and supported. So I've tried to do that in my few different forms. But the overarching lesson, to bring it back to your bigger question, is a lot of my experiences have sometimes come through positive, unfortunately some negative. Mm -hmm. But the pattern remains the same is what can we do to be the most positive in this way to move things forward, not yeah. just for yourselves, but for other people? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, and, and it's a struggle, you know, it is a struggle because, um, in, you know, it can really kind of develop a, a chip on your shoulder, you know what I'm saying? Um, but you also, like you said, you kind of have to understand like, okay, well, what can I, what, how can I get the most out of this moment? Is it going to benefit me most by maybe blowing up, making a big scene, overreacting? Am I going to even get the satisfaction, um, that I maybe may or may not be looking for out of that moment. So definitely always thinking critically about how you're moving about um, and how the world responds to you as well. So let's talk a little bit about like your journey through higher education was going to college, something that was just kind of like the household rule. Like that's what you're going to do. Did you, were you super successful throughout high school? Did you have some struggles? So kind of what led you to wanting to go to college? Well, I can tell you that for me, my father went to college. My mother Mm. went to junior college and did an associate's. My stepfather went to college and law school. And so for me, it was always – it was. I think it was always the default understanding was that I would go to college. Mm -hmm. It was just a question of when and for what. Mm -hmm. And one story that stood out to me – at this point was one of the first conversations I had about it was with my stepfather who said, give me a list of the colleges you want to go to. And Hmm. I think I may have been 13 at the time. And so I thought, where are all the colleges I know of in the area? And so I just made a quick list, didn't put much thought into it. And my stepfather came Hmm. back and said, this isn't a good list. You're just looking at the ones that are nearby and you need, you can think Hmm. bigger than that. And when I was in high school, I had similar ideas presented to me as far as where do you want to go? And Similar to many of the students that may have had have a chance to check this out, I got heavy recruitment because after my freshman year, which mm. was not good, I I did not my first year in college in high school did not go great because I was in mm. this private school. I didn't take my academics seriously at all, and there were other things that happened. Not to gripe about it, but when I was after my first quarter in high school, my house caught fire, and that was highly wow. disruptive to us because. We had to pack up and relocate and start over again. So that was my first year. But then after my first year, my grandmother passed away. And Mm. it was something about that that really stuck with me. And so I resolved after my mom said, look, just get C's your career. You'll be fine. And there was something in me that resolved to try harder from that point on. And so after my first year, I progressively got better and better. So by my second, my first year, my second year in high school, I was a better student. My third year, I was a mm. much better student. And by the time I was a senior, I was an exemplary student. And practic- I think from that point forward, practically every quarter, I got academic recognition. So I really did turn mm. it around. And by the time I got to my senior year, I was doing speech and debate. I was nationally recognized for my work. I was oh, a campus wow. leader. And I decided... Where do I want to go for college? The immediate idea mm. was, 
let me say with these schools, it was a Jesuit institution for high school. I said, let me stay at a Jesuit school. I think I can get a decent scholarship too, because for me, the the finance piece was very important. I didn't want my family to have to pay for my experiences. And so I ended up applying to a couple of Jesuit schools and one or two local schools. And the school that ultimately settled on, Loyola University in Maryland, it was down the street from me, and I ended up getting a really good scholarship to be there. And so it worked out. And I lived on campus all four years. It was down the street, but I really wanted the college experience to build on my leadership skills. I made it a point to do things like being an RA, which helped me learn a lot. That was a wonderful experience. Definitely encourage Mm -hmm. anyone interested to go for that. It's, It's a good opportunity. And academically, didn't do as well as I probably could have, partially mm-hmm. because I had a lot going on at that point and I didn't prioritize. Mm-hmm. I did well enough, though, to get into graduate school. And so I ended up going nice. to the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, where I did a master's degree in historical studies, history, with a focus mm-hmm. on East Asia. About a year into that, I was thinking about law school, and I thought, okay, well, hmm. what can I do to show academically that I can hold my own? And I was inter- I was volunteering. I won't say interning because I didn't get academic credit or anything, but right. I was volunteering at the public defender's office, and I saw this program at the University of Baltimore, which was right down the street from where I was volunteering, and mm-hmm. it was in legal and ethical studies, and I thought – could I really do that? Maybe I could do another master's degree while I'm working on this one. And mm-hmm. so starting that following winter, this would have been winter of 2006. Yeah. Winter of 2006, I started a second master's degree while I was writing wow. my thesis for my first one. Finished that. And at that point, I said, I've been in school long enough. I need to finish and churn this degree out real quick. And so I ended up taking a full course load during the summer, took another extra overload during the fall. And so I managed to finish that program in in about a year. So that Mm. was 2006 or so. And at that point, I had finished graduate school as much as I wanted to do at the time, had two master's degrees and started working. And I worked for corporate higher ed for a year. It was was Mm. fine. It was actually, I'm sorry, it was a few months. And decided I'm going to try to figure out this law thing. So I worked for a legal nonprofit mm. for about 15 months. Realized that, no, this isn't it. I don't think I want to be an attorney. This, here are all sure. the reasons why it didn't work. But I really enjoyed higher ed. I had all these great experiences. It was really transformative for me. And I like the mm. idea of working with students. So let me try to find my yeah. way back to higher ed. First opportunity was in graduate admissions. And so I did that job for two years. I was doing the recruitment, answering all of the student inquiries, all of those different things. Did that for the two years and realized that that's fun, but I'm really interested in this technical piece. So let me try to do records and registration for a while. And a while ended up being five years at the University of Maryland, one of their campuses. Wow. At that point, I decided, well... This has been good, and there's definitely a career arc, but by the time that was had happened, I'd been married for a number of years. My wife mm. and I had decided we wanted to go back to California because mm. that, that's where she was from. And by then, I'd said, I've done everything I can really do in Baltimore. That sounds good. A good, fresh start is good. And fortunately for me, I found UCR, and mm-hmm. that was a place from day one I fell in love with and said, that's where I'm going to go. And right. 
sure enough, in 2015, I've got a job there and I've been here ever since. And it's been cool. It's been terrific. Nice. So let's kind of get into some of your um, I want it. So every guest that I've spoken to so far, one way or another, right, we kind of get to this topic of mentorship, right, or assistance or sponsoring or just essentially someone um, during their college years was very formative in kind of helping them shape their trajectory or kind of give them an idea want to do or just to help them um, succeed in general. Can Is there any particular um, experience that you had throughout your multiple degrees or your pursuit of your degrees um, where you kind of experienced that someone kind of really laying their hand on you and kind of assisting you and helping walk, helping you walk through, um, you know, that process? I have been very lucky in that all throughout my academic and to some extent professional career, I've had mm. people that have given me that encouragement, have given me that pat on the shoulder and have told me, you're, you're headed down a bad path. Mm. This dates back to even when I was in high school. I had two mentors that really had my back. There mm-hmm. was Mr. Durkin, who was my English teacher, but it was also my speech and debate coach. Mm. He was always really good about giving that support. It turned out he was also from Baltimore. He mm. recognized a lot of my experiences. Right. He lived right down the street from me, if I recall correctly. Oh, wow. And so he was someone who watched out for me. And this was a Loyola alumni who was white and it didn't matter. He mm. was just willing to listen to me. He gave me a lot of encouragement. It was because of him that I got support to do a lot of the more formative experiences. And that was really terrific for me. Mm-hmm. Another mentor I had, his name was Mr. Boyce. Another alumni of the school mm-hmm. was a coach for basketball, but gave me a lot of encouragement. Hey, don't worry about this. I want you to go for this program. Right. If I had issues with books, he'd say, don't worry, let me see what I can do for you. And he he made a point to have my back quite a lot. Mm. So that was when I was in college or when I was in high school. In mm-hmm. fact, one of the things that he reminded me of, at one point he he put in context what it was to be black. And he there was one story where I heard about the scholarship and I'd said, oh, well, hey, because I'm a minority, I'll get eligible. He said, no, don't call yourself – don't say minority. You're black. Right. And, that, that stuck with me mm. a lot. Then when I went to college, I had a few different people who mentored me. There was one person would be Mr. Cole, who was at that point an assistant to the dean of students. Mm. Another person, his name was Mr. Thomas. He ran the African student programs equivalent at mm-hmm. my college. And they gave me a lot of support on the positive side of you're doing good work. This is fantastic. Right. But – at times when I was starting to head into trouble, they would also grab me and yank me back and say, mm. hey, we need you to slow down. We need right. you to pump the brakes on this. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's important to remember that a good mentor isn't going to always just be the one that tells you when things are great. They're mm. going to tell you when they think you're headed into trouble. And you have to be willing to hear that and understand that it's not coming from a, a place of – where we're trying to make you feel bad or feel jealous, feel guilty is we right. have walked down that path and we don't want you to head down it. And so even now, 
I have some folks who give me the same sort of support when mm. it comes to here's what you want to do, here's what you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And one piece of advice I would say for any student listening is in a perfect world, you have all sorts of mentors and mm-hmm. they should come in all sorts of forms. And some of the people who have given me support now, it's all across the spectrum. I have folks that have been white, black, male, female, members of the LGBT community, mm. and it's just all over the place. You should always be in a position where you're open and willing to take the advice from people willing to share it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the ways you can continue to grow. But all of that has played a big role in one way, shape, or form to not only how I view things professionally, but also the things that I think are important for me to do now that I'm on the other side of that. Right. And I can tell you with certain some of the students, it's reaching out and talking to them and drawing from my own experiences yeah. and saying, here's what you need to avoid and here's mm-hmm. why. Here's an example I can give you. Here's some resources. And by the way, the last thing I'll say is another important piece of the mentoring is that they may be a degree of separation from that contact that you need to figure out that last piece. Mm -hmm. So whenever I'm talking to students, I always try to bring a copy of my business cards because, hey, you may need this one day. Here you go. And if I could tap in my resource network to help you out, then I'm willing to do that. But it's just being willing to build that out understanding that there's a lot of opportunities for growth even when you're at my age and for your students this will be many many years from now but (laughs) there's always those opportunities to build on that to be sure no yeah and you know i i wanted to ask about that because like i said with every guest that i've spoken to so far like that's just one of the common reoccurring themes you know and uh, often at times it 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 drives them to do their service towards you know students um And I think the important part is, one, for people in the older generation whose job it is to be the mentors, you know, they have to extend the hand backward, right? Um, You have to make sure that you make yourself available. But I also want to encourage the students, like, don't be afraid to knock on doors, send emails, make phone calls, and do the things that you need to do to make sure that you're getting the support that you need. Um, We have a lot, a lot, a lot of great people on campus, um, that are really dedicated towards working with students and making sure that the student experience is really great. Um, But you have to do your diligence, right? You have to figure out who are these people and who do I need to talk to to get me to where I want to go, whatever that educational or career choice may be. Uh, And so let's kind of just talk more about the honors program a little bit. Can you give some insight to our students watching? What is the honors program? how do students get selected for the honors program? How can they be competitive for the honors program? And ultimately, how will the honors program benefit um, them in their college experience? Yeah, of course. And before I do that, the, the thing I would add to the piece you had, and that was all very poignant and correct, is don't underestimate where that resource comes from. And by that, I mean... Yes, the default mechanism is I'm going to talk to the professor of my class. I'm going to talk to the dean or the vice chancellor. But understand, too, that this is a very small campus. And what that means is sometimes the resource that you need may come from a place you don't even expect just by default. And one example may be that as someone who is in a leadership role within the campus's Black Faculty and Staff Association – right. I'm fortunate enough to be able to connect with a number of key players on campus. And so 
that you may not think, oh, well, this person may not. How do I get to know that faculty? Well, what if I see that person in a faculty meeting Mm -hmm. every month or I see them in a Bavasa meeting or we Mm -hmm. just happen to know each other because we had lunch a few times? So I think it's being it's recognizing that there are lots of different pathways that you could potentially be connected with these with the people that you may need and sometimes even when they aren't directly in line with it they may still have a set of insights or talents or experiences that are what you need to hear in that moment Mm. and some of the most important lessons that i got when i was in high school and even in college it didn't come from faculty it came from the staff members who had been on campus for a long time or it came from even someone who works in a space like facilities where yeah, I can talk to you all about that. I happen to have been here a long mm-hmm. time, so I understand who's who. And so uh, my point mm-hmm. is, before I get into your actual question, is don't underestimate the opportunity to develop your network in all sorts of ways because sometimes that hand that you shook, that person that you connected with, they might be Absolutely. That, that block between where you are and where you need to go and you just didn't realize it. So all that being said, yeah, absolutely. the university honors program is a four-year academic experience for students on campus to pursue things like additional academic opportunities, multi- and interdisciplinary research. It gives you a chance to do additional faculty interaction. There are exclusive opportunities such as a learning community for the first year, as well as a living learning community for folks who live in Pentland Hills, as well as in some cases in Glenmore Apartments. You also receive mm-hmm. additional counseling and guidance from a team of counselors, each of whom have done the work for years at this point. There mm-hmm. is a way to get additional experiences, such as some exclusive scholarships. And mm-hmm. also, it gives you access to more exclusive academic experiences such as classes with more faculty interaction Mm. i think that it's important to recognize that it's a very small community as well our numbers typically hover anywhere between 800 and a thousand students wow just depending on the size of the population and how many folks follow through with it as far as when students can join there are typically three pathways technically four I'll explain that in a moment. Mm -hmm. There are folks who come in and join during their first year, folks who join during their second year. And historically, there have been a few slots for people who join in their third year, and Mm. here's the fourth, and for students who transferred in to the university. Now, the criteria for admission differs based off of your year of entry. We have historically had a criteria we set for our first years by each year. In the case of the students, we dub eligible, and typically it's been an evaluated GPA of around 3.8 or above. And I'm emphasizing evaluated GPA because that means it's gone through a process, it's been reviewed by someone, and this is the University of California standard based off of what they believe is your GPA. And that differs mm. from what GPA you may have recorded from your high school. Right. So I, I like to make that point because sometimes students will say, well, I do have a 3.8. Say, well, was it what you're telling us or is that what we evaluated you to be? Mm. And so I do want to point that out. But for those who are considered eligible, they are sent an invitation to apply over a two-week period. It consists of a few different things about yourself as well as essays that just try to gauge who you are as well as your potential fitting into the program Mm -hmm. and 
over the course of a month from when the application becomes due, it's reviewed by faculty members, and we use that to determine what our first-year class is. Mm. And once those decisions are made, we begin to issue decisions, and that goes up until we reach what we consider to be full capacity, or in some cases, the students who don't meet the criteria based off of it, they're told as soon as possible that, hey, this, this is going to work, mm-hmm. but here's here's what you need to know as far as next year. And mm. so that's the first year. Then for the current second and third year or the incoming second and incoming third year students during spring quarter, and this might be where many students fit in, but they may have an opportunity to apply if they meet the GPA criteria each for each group. Now, mm. historically that has been a 3.5 GPA for your current UCR grade point average. Gotcha. And so as a spring, if your GPA is 3.5 or above, then you would get an invitation to apply mm. to the program. And mm. same sort of thing, same general essay. The only difference is that the essays have adjusted slightly based off of what year you're applying for. Mm. And for the third year students, it becomes a lot more difficult just because there are mm. less seats that are available. And so really, the sooner you apply and get into the program, the more opportunities there are mm. to join. So I, I think that's important to mention. As far as transfer students are concerned, same sort of process as the first year students. The only difference is we're using their grade point average from their time as an undergraduate to determine eligibility. Okay. Unlike the other places, which generally have about two weeks to apply for transfer students, we make it a little bit more rolling where students have more time to do it because we know that on the admission side that students are being recruited or, and admitted starting in, I think, March. And mm. we know that can be a little bit in flux, so we keep that open for them because we mm-hmm. want to try to accommodate them a bit more. But typically that process will run from March through the summer or mm-hmm. most of the summer, and we'll try to fill that up so that way we have a good capacity for our third year population. But generally the process consists of writing. I tell Mm. students, look at the essays first. Don't just jump in and start writing. Mm -hmm. Look at it. Use the period you have to apply to do something thoughtful. Sure. As opposed to rushing to immediately get a decision because Mm -hmm. one thing people don't realize is that it doesn't matter if you apply day one or day 14 that Mm -hmm. we're all giving them the same amount of time for review. So my advice would be when not just related to honors, but just in general, that if it's due by a certain point, give yourself the time necessary to give thoughtful and detailed answers. Don't just rush through it for the sake of getting it off your plate. Take your time with it. Same thing goes even for your work. Take your time with it. Mm -hmm. Write something thoughtful. Review it a couple of times. And make sure that you present yourself as well as possible because that's going to be – what people are judging it by. It doesn't matter anything else up to that point. It's based off of the paperwork that you've presented. So mm-hmm. give your, give that the time and thought that it deserves when you're mm-hmm. applying for these different opportunities. Mm-hmm. And anyway, to tie it all up, once all that's done, decisions go out depending on what year it is. So for mm-hmm. first years, it's typically April to May. For second and third years, it's around May. And mm-hmm. then for transfer students, it just depends on when they apply. But it's a great opportunity. I've been there for three and a half years now. And Mm. I can tell you on the back end, students who meet the process and do everything related to the engagement, related to the different opportunities we offer, and who ultimately complete the capstone project end up having a distinction added to their transcript. Mm. And they get this amazing experience of having written something that 
is preserved and is available through scholarship, and that's something they may use to apply to graduate school. They may use it as they're applying to medical school Mm -hmm. or law school, or maybe they use it to apply for different higher-level volunteer opportunities like the Mm -hmm. Coral Fellows Program. But it's just a good way to enhance your academic experience, Mm -hmm. and the people who go through the process typically come out much stronger and better on the other side. Yeah, And so it's very clear that any student that – is looking to really push themselves and excel, you know, they should be highly interested in the honors program. But, you know, if you could kind of speak to, you know, our black students in particular in, you know, why, why is it important that, you know, black students look at these types of organizations on campus, um, like the honors program in pursuit to occupy these spaces and to take advantage of these resources, um, it, you know, it can kind of be intimidating sometimes for students to want to kind of step outside of their comfort zone. But if you could just talk to our black students in particular, why is something like the honors program beyond what you've kind of expressed already? Like, why why is it relevant and important for our black students to get in and occupy these types of spaces on campus? Well, I can only speak I can speak to my experience and where I was when mm-hmm. I was at that point. Whenever I was invited to participate in those types of things there was a degree of imposter syndrome that i felt as far as maybe Mm. i don't deserve it but the thing to remember is that if you've met the criteria and you've gone through the process and you've done all these things then you do qualify you do deserve that opportunity to be considered just as much as anyone else and Mm. i think that the thing i was telling some i've told people on more than one occasion when they're applying for stuff is don't let other don't decide you aren't eligible for it by not applying. Let someone else make that decision mm-hmm. for you. And mm. so I think sometimes we disqualify ourselves just because we think, well, maybe we aren't capable, maybe we don't belong there. And I'll say, well, you probably right. do. And I can tell you that the students who have come through our program, our population demographics generally mirror the campuses. The students that I've worked with that have come through the program that our black students have done exemplary work. They try hard. Mm. They go on to amazing things. One student I'm thinking about right now is at an Ivy League law school. And mm. so I think that these students that if, if you're getting that invitation, it's because you've demonstrated you can do the work. And mm-hmm. it's on you to decide whether or not – you want to go that extra step. But I I would say that to not do it is depriving yourself of that chance to make your experience that much better. And I wouldn't just say that for honors. I think when it comes to everything, whether Mm. it's that other similar programs like Mellon Mays or the Mark U Star program, which is another fantastic program, even leadership opportunities Mm. on campus. It's the reason, one of the reasons why I think people avoid it is because they haven't seen anyone do it before right and they think that because they haven't seen it maybe that's not a space that belongs to them and i would say no that means that more than ever it's important that you do take that opportunity and run for it and just to prove that i'm not just sort of talking uh, (laughs) talking and not adding weight the thing i haven't told y'all is that one of my biggest opportunities that i had this year is that i'm serving as president of ucr staff assembly Mm. i've looked and i would need to verify it but to my knowledge i'm the first black person that served in that role wow i may be wrong about that do not quote me on it but everything <laughs> i've seen so far suggests that i sure. am 
And if I had that same sampling up, well, no one's done it before, then I shouldn't. Then I would be depriving myself of that chance to Mm. do something good and Mm -hmm. to gain development. So I think it's to not be afraid to even be that first person that's walked that terrain. So whether it's that, pursuing something like ASUCR, Mm -hmm. we've had a a black president of that. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. whether whether it's that or any of these other leadership and developmental opportunities, if you haven't seen it, then that means maybe it's your chance to break through that, break through that mold and tread that un, unwalked terrain. Yeah. And it's knowing that no matter what happens, you've got people that are going to be there to support you. And if you do it, you may be the person that inspired that next set of people to say, you know what, they did it. I'm going to go for it too. Absolutely. So I would say that it's important to occupy that space. Number one, to not deprive yourself of the opportunity, but mm-hmm. also to know that by putting your foot in that sand, mm-hmm. you've made a pathway that someone else may choose to walk through down the line. So it's mm-hmm. your chance to help contribute to campus in that way. So I would say don't be afraid of that. Embrace that opportunity. Know that you're going to be supported. Mm-hmm. And just be be bold. Boldness, mm-hmm. <laughs> being bold but thoughtful is rewarded in, this, in life. And yeah. so I would say go for it and not, not to be scared of that. Yeah, and, I, you know, I, I like the – kind of endpoint you put about being bold and being thoughtful um because i think in a lot of ways that is you know what when i look at the black student community here at ucr you know um i i see a lot of that you know i see students that are willing to advocate for themselves i'm seeing students that are willing to advocate for all students for the betterment on behalf of the entire campus um and it's just important to be in these different spaces. It's important to kind of rub shoulders with different people because, like you said, someone in your position who has served as president of the Black Faculty Staff Association here at UCR, who is currently the president of Staff Assembly, right, you're instantly intertwined with so many different levels of the university system that a student, you know, reaching out to you for help has instantaneous access right um as long as you're willing to put them in the right spot and and you are and so that's why i always just you know i really really want students to know like these spaces you can not only create your own spaces there's already pre-existing spaces and then there's new spaces that can be occupied even a bit more you know what i'm saying we can see a bigger push of you know black and african-american students pursuing the honors program right and because that's what's going to continuously inspire the future generation of black scholars at UCR to pursue those academic opportunities, right, that they deserve to um, to be a part of. And so just to wrap up our, our final question of the interview, I just want to kind of end on a little bit of black optimism, right? Um, and so what, when, with the work that you're doing, that you've been doing, how you want to assist students, when you look at the future generation of um, black UCR scholars that are going to be coming in, what is your most optimistic vision of the future that you have for them and that you're working for? Well, well, before I answer that question, I'll remind you, I, I'm going to point out a quote that has stuck with me for a very long time. It was done by someone named mm. Spotswood Robinson, who was a black attorney who worked in line with people like Thurgood Marshall when it came to all of the desegregation that happened during the civil rights movement. There's a quote that he said that I would encourage students to think about, and it is, set your goals carefully and fearlessly and pursue them unswervingly. And Mm. 
I think that's a really good roadmap is be deliberate in your plans. But once you've made your decisions, don't let anything stop you. As far as mm. the optimism is concerned, I've been become very optimistic based off of the amount of work that I'm seeing the students do. There are some mm-hmm. really strong f- students from the black experience who are making their presence felt when it comes to mm. big things that are happening on campus, but also happening globally. I'm very optimistic because even over the course of the past few months, you've seen people really take their what their needs are and bring it mm-hmm. to the attention of the people who have the ability to do something about it. Right. And they realize that their voice has a lot of weight. And I think that once you get a sense of the fact that you have power and you do things to use it in mm-hmm. a thoughtful and methodical way, and I think it's a really beautiful thing. So I was very impressed by the work that I saw. And I can tell you in some ways their work made action and it got people thinking even beyond that because yeah. similar to that, that same action was one that was reflected in the Black Faculty and Staff Association because mm-hmm. they did a similarly minded letter speaking to their experience. Right. And another part I can tell you about, and this is a fairly recent development as in the last couple of weeks, is – even on a system level, that same type of action found itself in the hands of different black affinity groups throughout the UC, and they wrote right. a letter, too, that was submitted to the Board of Regents as well as the outgoing and incoming UC presidents. And as a part of that, the last bit I'll tell you is that inspired people to even make public statements to it when yeah. they were talking to the Board of Regents. And so the point that I'm making is – My optimism in this moment is the fact that people are recognizing that there's a lot of stuff happening now and we need to say something and do something about it. And Mm -hmm. I think we're starting to see people do that. That's a really important piece to it. And so far, as far as I can tell, the folks in senior management are at least aware of it and are trying to figure out what are the best things we can do moving forward. I'm also optimistic in that you're seeing a lot more relationships being formed between different partners throughout UCR that are, what are, what can we best do to uplift and support our students? Some mm-hmm. of that predates the last year. For example, African Student Programs has been doing this work for actual decades. Yeah. But you're also starting to see other adjacent groups, whether it is the Black Faculty and Staff Association or Blackness Unbound, which is more academically minded, mm-hmm. or even the Black Alumni Chapter, which has been supporting for a while. You're starting to see more of those sort of relationships crystallize yeah. and you're seeing these folks, everyone's kind of collaborating with each other. And so I think that's a really good cause for optimism as well. The last thing I would say is that I think our students have always been talented and capable Mm -hmm. and motivated. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's just that on a campus level, we're starting to ask the questions of what can we do to best uplift them? Right. And I think the fact that we've, we're moving in that direction, that this population, which has historically shown great rates when it comes to graduation, they're starting to realize what a gift we have in our black students. Mm -hmm. And it's trying to think, what else can we do to make sure that they feel empowered to Mm -hmm. do things? And so in, in closing, I would just say that the fact that the students are getting active, but that the campus seems to be listening. I think right. there's a lot of cause for optimism. And we've got some really strong leaders as well who are black and who aren't black who are sensitive to that as well. Mm-hmm. And I think we're very lucky that 
we haven't. UCR is a very special place when it comes to higher education, period. Mm-hmm. But I do think that when it comes to the black experience, there's a very unique story that we're finally starting to listen to. Right. And hopefully we'll see that built on over the next few years so that wait 10 years from now if i'm still on campus and if if we're still here and we're doing a retrospect we can say look at how far we've come since 2020 so that that's i would love to see us be in that direction in the long term yeah i think that was beautifully put and you know i i just want students to understand like that is the experience here at UCR, right? We, we have coalitions within the black community at UCR from faculty to staff to students to alumni. Um, and it's a great sense of community and we're all feeding off of each other in this positive energy, especially in the time period that we're in now and where we have our students inspiring the faculty and staff to make statements which are inspiring the whole system of the UC, you know, to to, to come together and make statements is, is very impressive. So I just want, you know, all of our prospective students, but especially our black students who are looking for a strong black experience um, within the UC system. Um, we have people here at UCR that are going to nurture you and support you. So, Dennis, um, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we really appreciate you joining us on the Blue, Gold, and Black podcast. We are super happy to amplify your voice today. Um, and we look forward to having you on in the future and again. My pleasure. I appreciate you having me. Keep up the good work and just let me know where I can help. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. Thank you for joining us on Blue, Gold, and Black. This program is produced by the Community Engagement and Outreach Unit of Undergraduate Admissions at the University of California, Riverside. Learn more about attending UCR by visiting admissions.ucr.edu. And be sure to check out the description for other useful links and resources. Help support this podcast by liking, subscribing, and sharing. And be sure to check out our podcast videos on YouTube. Catch you guys later. (laughs) 